0: Good evening and welcome to NTD News. I'm Stephanie Cox, here are today's top stories. The Durham report on the FBI's probe into Trump's 2016 campaign is out. It concludes that the FBI didn't have actual evidence for investigating Trump's campaign. Within walking distance of Times Square and the World Trade Center Memorial site, New York City hotels are scrambling to make room for the arrival of illegal immigrants. We'll hear more from local residents. Florida stops funding diversity, equity, and inclusion programs in higher education. Meanwhile, former President Trump criticizes the state's abortion laws. We'll bring you what he said. No more funding for diversity, equity, and inclusion programs in Florida's colleges. Governor DeSantis is signing a bill today. Meanwhile, former President Trump criticizes DeSantis for his stance on abortion. NTD's Arian Pazdar has the
1: details. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis on Monday signing a higher education bill. Among other things, it will prohibit higher education institutions from spending public dollars on diversity, equity and inclusion or other initiatives that promote dangerous political and social activism. The Cambridge Dictionary defines diversity, equity, inclusion or DEI as the idea that all people should have equal rights and treatment and be welcomed and included. However, critics say DEI programs are often too extreme and promote ideas of the far left, similar to critical race theory. Dissent on Monday, said colleges these days often pursue a certain political agenda, sometimes through DEI programs.
2: Uh, It's our view that when the taxpayers are funding these institutions, that we as Floridians and we as taxpayers have every right to insist uh, that they are following a mission that is consistent with the best interests of our people and our
1: state. The United Faculty of Florida on Monday opposed the bill signing, saying... Today we saw a governor who believes that viewpoint discrimination, the undermining of constitutional rights, compelling speech from students and faculty, and censoring ideas he disagrees with are somehow acceptable in a democratic society. And this video showing a small group of protesters at Monday's bill signing is circulating online.
3: Our school, our
1: church. Also on Monday, a top official in DeSantis' gubernatorial office reportedly stepped down. This is yet another sign that the governor plans to run for president. Fox News reports that the official will now join the governor's political operation, saying he's stepping away from this role to pursue other avenues of helping to deliver the governor's success to our country. And in a new interview published Monday, former President Trump criticized DeSantis for signing a six-week abortion ban. The Messenger published the interview with Trump saying he signed six weeks and many people within the pro-life movement feel that that was too harsh. Trump reportedly didn't say if he personally believes a six-week ban went too far. Arian Pastar, NTD News.
0: And amid all this, DeSantis visited Iowa on Saturday, just as Trump canceled his event there due to weather. How are the two leaders doing in a hypothetical primary? Let's look at the data. Earlier today, I spoke with the director of Big Data Poll, Richard Barris, for his insights. Richard Barris, welcome to our show. Thanks so much for coming on. Hey, thanks for having me. It's always good to be here. Yeah, so there's plenty happening in the world of the presidential elections. Um, we have recent polling from Florida Atlantic University and Main Street Research saying that, you know, Florida Republicans strongly support, uh, strongly support Trump in a hypothetical against DeSantis. What are you seeing in your polling on that front, and what does it ind- indicate, do you think, about this part of the election cycle?
4: We also polled Florida about a day before that poll came out. Uh, it looked a little bit better for Ron DeSantis, but in truth, he still was, uh, he was down pretty significantly. And uh, more, more astonishing to me was how non-white, a Florida Republican primary could be this year. Among Hispanics in Florida, the former president carried them uh, 56 to 33 over their own governor. So it's significant. It's a big lead.
0: Wow. Interesting. And across the nation, Trump is most popular among non-college working class. What are you seeing about his popularity among the educated? And and what's it telling you about his popularity in general, his chances?
4: yeah, this is, this is really what it comes down to. And as of this last month, the four-year college demographic, which was DeSantis's best demographic, is not even close anymore. He trails the president by 30 points with these voters. This is overall the problem that not just Ron DeSantis, but anyone not named Trump is gonna have you're not gonna take the non-college vote from him. Even this early, anybody who has ever polled at or above 50% at this point went on to be the nominee. And now we're beyond 50 at this point. We're north of 60 in some polls at 60. It's statistically significant. You have to change decided voters' minds now. It's not about persuasion anymore.
0: Right, and so even in the case of, we're looking at Trump facing a whole slew of court cases.
4: If they don't bring something more serious than this, and blatantly serious, in in time, voters rally, they circle the wagons, and they're made to be viewed as victims, or martyrs, even.
0: And in a general election, where the voters may be less sure about Trump or have a less fixed opinion, what's your uh, polling showing? The
4: demographic everyone's concerned about is suburban women, and when we looked at it and compared it to our final 2020 poll, uh, which was done from the Epoch Times, Trump is already higher in support at this point, well, among suburban women, than he was in our final poll in 2020 and in 2016. People didn't measure Trump against some immaterial or arbitrary bar or standard. They measured him against Hillary Clinton. Now the shine is off Joe Biden. I think when you're looking at a binary choice, he's doing better. People are simply going to look back and say, does this bother me more than the deterioration of my economic uh, situation? or does it bother me more than the deterioration of foreign policy or whatever may be their voting issue? And at the end of the day, I think they'll choose competence over that. I do. So that's what the numbers clearly show. They're, they're more interested in.
0: Right. Fascinating. Thank you so much, Richard Barris. Really appreciate it. All the best. Thanks for having me on. As a national default looms even closer, President Biden will meet again with House Speaker Kevin McCarthy on the debt ceiling. But as Biden sounds optimistic, McCarthy says the two sides are still far apart. NTD's Iris Tau has more. Good evening, Steph.
5: President Biden confirmed on Monday that he will be meeting with congressional leaders once again on Tuesday. The topic, of course, remains how to raise the nation's borrowing limit as we're now just a bit more than two weeks away from a potential national default, meaning the government could run out of money. The House GOP majority is still insisting that spending cuts must happen in exchange for raising the debt ceiling. But the White House and Democrats say no conditions should be attached. Despite the standoff, President Biden sounded pretty optimistic over the weekend about the possibility of reaching a deal soon. Watch.
6: I remain optimistic because I'm a congenital optimist. But I really think there's a desire on their part as well as ours to reach agreement. I think we'll be able to do it.
5: Biden congressional leaders last met on last Tuesday and officials say their staffers have been holding constructive talks since then. But House Speaker Kevin McCarthy said on Monday that administration is not being serious with negotiations.
3: I still think we're far apart. Um, it doesn't seem to mean that, that they want it. It just seems that they want to look
7: like they're in a meeting, but they're not, they're not talking anything serious.
5: And this is as the White House confirmed on Monday that Biden would not cancel his plan to travel to Japan later this week. That means that Biden would really want to see actual progress in the Tuesday meeting so that he doesn't get criticized for flying to Asia
0: with a default looming. Back to you, Steph. Thanks, Iris. Now, President Biden is nominating the next director of the National Institutes of Health, or NIH. She's a cancer surgeon, Dr. Monica Bertignoli. Bertignoli currently leads the National Cancer Institute. She announced last December that she was diagnosed with early breast cancer. She told NPR in February that she was still in treatment. The White House said in a statement today that Bertignoli is, quote, a world-class physician scientist whose vision and leadership will ensure NIH continues to be an engine of innovation to improve the health of the American people. If confirmed by the Senate, Burton Yoli will fill a role that's been vacant for over a year. Dr. Lawrence Tabak has been serving as acting NIH director since Dr. Francis Collins retired at the end of 2021. After three years of investigations, Special Counsel John Durham has released the report on the FBI's crossfire hurricane probe into former President Trump. The report is over 300 pages. It concludes that federal investigators didn't have any actual evidence of collusion between Trump's 2016 campaign and Russia, and the FBI also didn't interview any witnesses before opening their probe into Trump in 2016. But instead, the Bureau rushed to open the initial investigation based on unvetted intelligence from Australia. The Durham report also concludes that the FBI's conduct in the Trump probe was different from how the department treated other politically sensitive investigations in 2016. Lawmakers on Capitol Hill are reacting to the report, with House Judiciary Committee Chairman Jim Jordan saying he plans to have Durham testify next week. And bracing for an illegal immigrant influx. New York City is converting hotels to emergency sent shelters, making room for illegal immigrants coming into the city. NTD's Sam Wong brings us the latest on that.
8: In Midtown Manhattan, the historic Roosevelt Hotel opens its door again after being shuttered for almost three years. They're preparing to accommodate illegal immigrants. Now that Title 42 has ended, The public health measure allowed authorities to swiftly expel illegal immigrants amid the COVID-19 pandemic. The Roosevelt Hotel, which will serve as an arrival center, is just one of the many hotels in the city being converted into emergency shelters. Mayor Eric Adams said that he can provide as many as 1,000 rooms, and all newcomers will be directed there. Last week, Adams suspended parts of the city's law guaranteeing shelter to all residents. He later began to send illegal immigrants on buses to New York's upstate suburbs. That's despite backlash from local leaders. So what do New York City residents think about the ongoing influx? I asked some folks walking by and here's what they told me.
5: People need to come here and they need places to stay. They should be able to.
7: Um, I think it's a much more difficult problem than like a black and white answer. I think uh, everybody deserves shelter. I think
9: Title 42 should remain in place. I don't think uh, our mayor is particularly qualified to meddle with it, so leave it alone.
8: Before the end of Title 42, New York City taxpayers spent about $8 million per day to shelter illegal immigrants. Many of the sanctuary city's migrant population came from Texas after Governor Greg Abbott began to send them on buses in 2022. Sam Wong, NTD News, New York.
0: And the surge of illegal immigration is also affecting the lives of people living near the Mexican border. Residents shared personal stories with former U.S. officials. NTD's Jason Perry has that story. My two dogs were poisoned. A
6: resident near the US-Mexico border spoke to a small group of people last week at a home near El Paso, Texas. She shared her experiences dealing with the surge of illegal
4: immigration. So we started working with ICE. They set up a video camera. It took about six months and sure enough, we caught a guy because my husband and I accidentally closed our gate at the same time people with bags were running out of the dry canal. And I looked at my husband, who's not from here, and I said, don't look, because if they they know that we saw them, we're in trouble.
7: And
6: another resident shared a close call that he recently had.
7: I retired from the intel department, but I get a call from one of my intel guys, and he says, hey, wake up your family. We just had, um, uh, they're they're following some Uh, a smuggling load and they just bailed out right in front of your house. They were knocking on the door trying to come into my house but that's that's what it's come to. Never happened before under the other administrations until this administration came in.
6: The Biden administration has said they inherited a broken immigration system. Former chief of the U.S. Border Patrol Mark Morgan had this to say about that.
1: When I say that they're the ones that dismantled. The the plethora, the network of tools, authorities, and policy we had, guess what? I can give you examples. The safe third country agreements we had with all three Northern Triangle countries under Biden, gone. The Remain in Mexico program, which was single-handedly the most significant program that deterred illegal aliens from coming here under Biden, gone. The wall system, which acted as part of that multi-layer strategy of infrastructure, technology, and personnel that Rodney talked about, gone. ICE's ability to conduct interior enforcement, to remove criminal illegal aliens from the streets of our cities, gone. Yeah, don't tell me you inherited anything dismantled. They're the ones that dismantled and they're lying to the American people about it.
6: Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas said Sunday that it's too early to know whether the surge of illegal immigration has actually peaked since Title 42 ended last week, and he'll know more in the coming days. Meanwhile, cities along the border have been left to struggle as thousands of migrants continue to cross the border illegally. Jason Perry, NTD News.
0: Coming up, the Ukrainian president makes a surprise visit to London. What new weapons did the British government pledge to supply him? And Turkey could become a more secular nation. Would it strengthen ties with Europe? We'll explore the results of their presidential election and more when we return. As giving new military assistance to Ukraine. This comes as the Ukrainian president made a surprise visit to the UK. The British Prime Minister says the UK will remain steadfast in its support. NTD's Malcolm Hudson reports from London.
8: Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky arrives on English soil to meet British Prime Minister Rishi Sunak. The UK announced it will send armed drones and hundreds of long-range missiles to Ukraine. As we said right at the beginning, the U.K. will remain steadfast in supporting Ukraine and its people to defend itself. The new equipment will be
7: delivered over the coming months. Zelensky added. Today we spoke about the jets, very important topic for us, because we can't control the sky, you know it. We want to create this uh, Jets Coalition, and I'm very positive with it.
8: Sunak said Britain will start training Ukrainian pilots soon but NATO has been reluctant to provide jets. Russia could see it as a Western provocation. Zelensky's surprise visit to the UK comes in the middle of a European tour. On Sunday, he won major pledges of tanks, armoured vehicles and other weapons from Germany and France. Ukraine is expected to launch a major counter-offensive in the coming weeks. The country wants to recapture land occupied by Russian forces. Malcolm Hudson, NTD News, London.
0: And looking at Turkey now, where the presidential election is going to a runoff after both of the main candidates won less than half the vote. Next we take a look at why that might be and what might be the significance for Turkey's policies for the U.S. and for the world. Earlier today I spoke with geopolitical analyst Brandon Weikert for his take. Brandon Weikert, welcome to our show. Thanks so much for coming on. Thanks for having me on again. Now. President Tayyip Erdogan's popularity has plummeted as of late. What are the key factors driving this, do you think? Well, he's been in office
2: for a very long time, so I think part of it might be people are just tired of him. Another issue is the Syrian refugee crisis. More importantly than any of that, though, has been the spending issue. So, Erdogan has uh, basically been a big spender. It's not very popular.
0: We also want to look at NATO. You know, because Turkey is a key player in NATO, especially with regards to Finland and sw- Sweden. Well, the
2: the interesting the interesting thing is um, his uh, his opponent uh, in the election is uh, anti-Islamist. That he wants to return to a secular Turkey. You could make the argument that the uh, opponent to Erdogan is probably also friendlier to NATO and probably also friendlier to European Union uh, and more anti-Russia. The thing with Erdogan has been that he is not necessarily pro-Russia, he's simply pro-Turkey being as independent as possible from Europe and the West uh, without being completely detached from the West. So it's this big balancing act with Erdogan, but if he loses... I don't know if that balancing act is going to be there anymore. Turkey might suddenly become much more friendlier uh, to NATO than it has been under Erdogan. We just won't know until the election is officially over and there is a leader decided upon.
0: If Erdogan does not win, how could that affect the U.S.-Turkey relations? Well, again, it's contingent on how the
2: runoff goes. It's contingent on if there's a coalition negotiation that includes this ultra-nationalist's desires. Um, it, could be very, it could be better uh, from the United States perspective if Erdogan's out. But then again, it might be
0: better keeping the devil we know, rather than someone that we don't. In summary, why is Turkey important to the U.S. strategically?
2: Well, Turkey is the—it's literally the crossroads of civilization, as the old ancient saying goes. It has also served for decades as the important, vital uh, southern plank of a NATO's southern defensive perimeter. It's along the Black Sea. It allowed us to contain the Soviet Union in the Cold War. It could conceivably allow us to check Russian ambitions in the Black Sea and in that sort of southern periphery of Europe. And also, it is uh, facing the Middle East, so it allows for NATO power projection possibly into the greater Middle East. But if they're against us or if they're opposed to us in Turkey, they could really curb American and NATO power projection into the Middle East. So it creates a whole lot of complications if we don't have that government on side.
0: Brandon Weikert, always great to speak with you. Thank you Thanks so for much. Social Security recipients. You could be getting a Reduced Cost of Living Adjustment, or COLA, in 2024. According to the Senior Citizens League, next year's COLA could be less than half of the 2023 amount. The league links the decrease to cooling inflation, but it's also worried that a smaller COLA could have serious impacts on Social Security recipients. The group's recent study says that a lower inflation rate has not necessarily meant that prices have decreased, and that some essential items remain at high prices. The study also says that inflation measures, like the Consumer Price Index, or CPI, does not accurately reflect price increases in things that older Americans spend money on, like prescription drugs and dental services. Mother's Day and flowers seem to be a perfect match, And in San Francisco's Golden Gate Park, one organization held a show and contest for roses on the special day. Along with honoring mothers, the group hopes it can inspire people to try growing roses in their own gardens. NTD's Jason Blair has that story.
7: This Sunday, the San Francisco Rose Society held its 82nd annual rose show. It's a free event that attracts local and out-of-town rose enthusiasts as well as casual flower appreciators who stop in to check out the wide variety of displays.
9: It's nice to share the roses with the moms and spend the day in the park.
7: And before the show gets started, there's a contest with judges picking the top winners for a royal court display.
9: Ones behind me are the the court of the show. We've got the queen, king, and princess. And among all the hybrid teas and all the different categories, we pick the most beautiful, and then the judges pick the most beautiful of the beautiful.
7: Visitors' brows took plenty of photos and admired the fresh fragrances and all the different colors from one of the world's most popular flowers.
9: There was one very, like kind of, it's not miniature, but small rose, but it was like purple. And then typically it's not my favorite color, but that one looked like, like perfect. We always hope that the public um, can see the different variety of roses you can grow and learn too. There's a myth that you can't grow roses in San Francisco. It is possible. Yes, we have fog. Yes, it can be a little challenging, but you can grow roses here. So we try to inspire people to grow their own roses.
7: The San Francisco Rose Society is part of the American Rose Society. Along with hosting the popular event, they also do pruning demonstrations, as well as host monthly meetings on how to grow, show, and take photos of roses. Jason Blair, NTD News, San Francisco.
0: And now for sports news today, here's NTD's Dave Martin, who has a new job for NFL great Matt Ryan.
3: Thank you, Steph. Former NFL MVP Matt Ryan announced today he's joining CBS Sports as an NFL analyst. The longtime Atlanta Falcon posted his news on Twitter this morning, ending it by saying P.S. this is not a retirement post. Ryan was released by the Indianapolis Colts in March after spending just one year there in which he was benched on two separate occasions. Ryan, who turns 38 this week, spent the previous 14 seasons in Atlanta, winning MVP in 2016 when he led the Falcons to the Super Bowl. And in baseball news, the Oakland A's have reached an agreement to build their new ballpark in Las Vegas on the Tropicana Hotel site along the Strip. The stadium is expected to have a seating capacity of 30,000, while coming in at a cost of $1.5 billion. The agreement includes approximately $400 million in public funding. Now, The A's had previously agreed to build their stadium on the other side of Interstate 15, though that agreement would have included $500 million in public funding. Oakland currently has the worst record in baseball, along with an average attendance of less than 10,000 fans, which is far and away the lowest in the game. Under the current agreement, construction would begin on the new stadium next year and be ready in time for the 2027 season. The franchise has been in Oakland since 1968 after moving there from Kansas City. And for your sports viewing schedule tonight, no NBA playoffs but a Game 7 on the ice as Dallas hosts Seattle with the winner advancing to the conference finals. And finally for you baseball fans, 11 games on tonight including an Angels-Orioles matchup with 2 A star Shohei Ohtani on the mound for Los Angeles. Ohtani leads the team with a 4-1 record as a pitcher while his eight home runs and 26 RBIs are both second. And that is it for your sports news today. Steph, back to you.
0: Thanks, Dave. And if you have any news tips or feedback for our show, you can email us at eveningnews at ntd.com. That's all for today's news. Thanks for tuning in. I'm Stephanie Cox. Good night.